welcome to or welcome back to the Journey Through Life podcast. I'm Justin Barton, and this is my show. Some of you may or may not have already listened to this podcast before, but it's all about ordinary people with extraordinary stories and allowing a space where people can reflect on on our own lives and look inward to learn wisdom from the life lessons and experiences of the guests of this show. I also invite my awesome guests to share some of the things that are most important to them so that future generations can receive words of wisdom directly from those who live their lives and experience the world today. Today, we will be journeying with Matthew Dix, a storyteller, an elementary school teacher, an author of several novels, and an author of a recent nonfiction book called Storyworthy, Engage, Teach, Persuade, and Change Your Life Through the Power of Storytelling. And he, along with his wife, Alicia, also are podcast hosts. They have their own podcast called Speak Up, and each week they drop one episode, and it's one of the podcasts, the several podcasts, that I make sure I listen to every week. They also produce several Speak Up storytelling live events and workshops per year in their community. To learn more about him, the podcast, his books, and other events that he holds, please go visit him at www.matthewdix.com. He is a very busy guy, and the title of this episode is Every Minute is Important, A Journey Through Life with Matthew Dix. And with that title, I'm even more grateful that Matt agreed to take a little over an hour of important minutes to share some really helpful and meaningful things with me and with you, the listening audience. I think you will find this hour or so of minutes important to you, too, as you listen and strive to apply something from this conversation into your own life. Now, if you have not already subscribed to this podcast, go and do it right now, for free, in whatever podcast platform you are hearing this on. That way, you can continue to reflect and learn from the experiences of current, past, and future guests. And if you haven't already reviewed and rated the Journey Through Life podcast, what in the world is holding you back? please take 30 seconds and give us a five-star rating and write a 10-word review. You can also like us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is at JTL Podcast for both of them. Also, you can check out the website and nominate yourself or a loved one to be a future guest right there at www.jtlpod.com. Now, please also go check out our sponsors, www.alifeuntold.com and use promo code JUSTIN at checkout to save 10% on a personalized and hardbound book of your own personal history or the personal history of someone that you love to be left as a legacy for those who come after you or them. Also check out www.shepherdbrackets.com for awesome brackets to create your own open shelving concept in your kitchen, bathroom, office, or anywhere else you would like some stylish and high-quality floating shelves in your home. Use promo code JTLPOD5 to save 5% on all orders there. And then check out www.radfordpineshomedecor.com for the high-quality, high-end, solid wood floating shelves that come fully prepared for and with a shepherd bracket. Use JTLPOD5 there for 5% off your purchase. Let's jump right into this meaningful conversation with Matthew Dix. Every minute is important. A Journey Through Life with Matthew Dix. So I'm sitting here with Matthew Dix. I'm gonna, he said it's okay to call him Matt. Um, Matt, tell us a little bit about what you do today that is interesting. Well, I mean, I do a lot. You know, I'm an elementary school teacher. I think that's probably the most interesting part of my day, to be honest with you, when you have 20, 10 year olds, you sort of never know what you're going to, what you're going to get. Uh, but when I'm not teaching, I am a novelist or I'm a writer. I write novels and columns. I have a nonfiction book on storytelling and I, I perform and teach storytelling sort of all over the world now, oddly enough. It's a, it's one of those things that you don't expect to have happened and then suddenly it happens. Yeah. And I'd like to get into that here in a little bit as to how that happened, because I'm sure it's super interesting. Now, one thing about this is I probably know more about you 
than just about anybody I've ever had the conversation with for my podcast, even more than I think I knew about my own grandmother. Because <laughs> um, your podcast is one I listen to every week and I have for, I don't know, last five or six months, I think, when I first came across your podcast. And you tell stories about your life in those podcasts that are already very deep and intimate and things that most people don't talk about on the street. So tell me why you got interested in or how you got interested in telling stories and sharing some of these very personal details about yourself in that, in that manner. I, I guess it happened in two ways, really. You know, it turns out I've been telling stories about my life for all of my life. I just really didn't recognize it. You know, if I track it back, I know that when I was sort of 17, 18, 19 years old, and I was looking to get attention from girls and anyone else who happened to be around me, I quickly realized that if I spoke about things that most people don't speak about, people were drawn to me. And I discovered that if I speak about embarrassing moments and shameful moments and bad decisions, that would make people laugh. And I discovered that if I can make a girl laugh long enough, uh, it's sort of like erosion. I can wear away at their defenses hmm. and pretty soon they want to spend more time with me. Hmm. And, you know, it's the way I made friends. It's the way that I got myself out of trouble. I just was always sort of telling stories about myself, not really recognizing myself as a storyteller, but just hmm. someone who was using this thing to navigate life and, you know, get what I wanted when I needed it. Huh. Very interesting. I know when I was 17, 18 years old, I was way too self-conscious to tell about those shameful things, those embarrassing things. I mean, I wanted to look cool because I thought that's what everybody wanted to see in me. But you, you were able to observe even at that age that, hey, if I'm a little bit vulnerable, people will be drawn to me. Yeah. I mean, I'm blessed and cursed with <laughs> the lack of concern over what other people think of me. That is how, that's always who I've been. On, and that's wonderful and terrible, depending on the circumstances, my wife will tell you. <laughs> so I had that advantage going for me. But, you know, I hung out with a lot of really cool guys. And, you know, some of them were like, just really remarkable people. And I was not a remarkable person in any way, particularly at that age. And so I sort of understood right away, I'm not going to win on looks. I'm not going to win on the cool factor. <laughs> like I need to find my niche. And my niche just turned out to be, you know, telling people everything that there was about myself and quickly realizing that things like bragging and telling stories about my success did not interest anyone. You know, I think I had an ear. I've always been a good listener. And so I started to pick up what I liked about what people were saying. And because of that, I started to emulate that and sort of, you know, take it to a new level, I guess. Huh. So do you think you've always been a good listener also to others then? Yeah, I do. I think I've been a person who's always been willing to listen. You know, I'm very much an auditory learner to begin with. Hmm. You know, I have no visual memory almost at all. You know, famously, my wife and I were driving home one day after having lived in our home for eight years. And on the way home, I mentioned that our house was yellow. And she said, it's not yellow, it's tan. It's almost brown. And I said, no, it is like a solid yellow. And we argued for 20 minutes. We pulled on the street and I went, look at that. I live in a tan house. Uh, you know, and it's just, I have no visual memory. I just, I really don't. My wife has said, if you line up 10 brunettes, mm -hmm. her height in a row, she says, you wouldn't be able to pick me out of the lineup, which is not true, but there's truth in what she says. But I've always been... I've always been a person who processes information auditorily. I just remember what people say. You know, I'm an awful person to argue with. I was the state debate champion two years in a row. Oh, wow. Because I can listen to what you say. I can repeat it back to you. And then I can twist it on you <laughs> and really use it against you. So that was my talent. That might have gotten you in trouble, not necessarily in a debate thing, but maybe on you know, out on the playground or something like that, turning it and twisting a story on somebody bigger than you. Did that ever get you in trouble? Like, like a physical altercation because you twisted something on somebody and made them look like a fool? Yeah. I mean, I was always interested in sort of standing against power. You know, when I was in high school, I was, uh, I was suspended for inciting riot upon myself. You know, there was, there was a time when I was a freshman and the seniors 
at the time were hazing freshmen. It was allowed back in the mm-hmm. 1980s. And I just decided it wasn't going to be something I put up with. And, you know, so I created flyers that I would hold in the front of the school that said like seniors suck, seniors are wimps. I would plaster bathrooms with posters about how terrible they were. I'd make fun of them for beating up a kid half their size, which is what they were doing to me. Mm-hmm. And eventually the principal called my mother and said, I need to suspend him for three days. There was a big dance coming up, the freshman senior get acquainted dance. And the principal didn't want me going because he thought I was going to get seriously hurt at the dance. And so he suspended me for inciting riot upon myself. So I was just always that person who had a big mouth and knew how to use it. And sometimes it worked out really well for me and sometimes it got me in trouble. So, so on the, in that situation where you were suspended, were you standing up for yourself or do you think you were standing up for a bigger cause at that point? Was it mostly about, Hey, I'm, <laughs> I just don't want this to happen to me and I'm going to make a stink about it. Or, or was it other people? I guess it was, I couldn't stand authority. You know, my, I'm asked all the time, sort of, why did you become an elementary school teacher? And I have some lovely answers to that question. But one day when I was asked it, my wife was next to me and I gave all my lovely answers. And then she said, also, he hates being told what to do. And as a school teacher, you spend most of your days with a bunch of kids with no one telling you what to do. Mm. And when she said it, I thought, oh my gosh, I think she's right. Because I really can't abide authority and people telling me what to do. It's just a really hard thing for me to live with. So I think I was I think I was standing up against authority in general. I wasn't really defending my classmates in any way. I wasn't concerned about their well-being. They were sort of all fine because they were going along with the ritual. I just couldn't stand the fact that larger people were imposing their will on me. Hmm. As you look back on your life, can you think of a time where that where somebody in authority did something to you or to somebody you love that really turned you in that direction where, you know what, I am going to stand up against authority or do you think that's just hardwired in you? I don't know if it's hardwired, but I had a terrible stepfather. You know, he came into my life at the age of seven and I fought him (laughs) every step of the way. So I suspect that, uh, I suspect that his presence in my life had a great deal of impact in terms of my rejection of authority. You know, I, I, it's hard to say whether I felt that way earlier in life, you know, whether, you know, when I was six, I was rejecting authority, but certainly when he came into my life, I wasn't putting up with any of it. So, hmm. so, so I think he probably had a big part in it. Interesting. So I, I want to try and ask kind of an out of left field question, something that I've never heard you talk about. And so I want to see if I can uh, triggered like a memory or or something from your past that you might be able to share with me and maybe maybe something that you haven't thought about. Do you have like an extended family member, a great aunt or a you know a great grandfather or grandmother that you can remember from your childhood who did something with you that really encouraged you and built you up and had a lasting effect on your life? Yeah, I can. I not many of them to be honest with you. There's there was a I have an aunt. I have an aunt Diane. I actually have an aunt Diane on both sides of my family, mm. but uh, on my mother's side, my aunt Diane was my mother's sister. And when I was a kid, I was extremely curious. I mean, I still am to this day. And I love to learn. And when I was like 10, 11, and 12, I was writing political cartoons. Wow. Reagan was in office. And I, I was writing. Uh, I was writing political cartoons one Easter morning at my grandparents' house about Reaganomics and the flaws of Reaganomics. Yeah, as a little kid, at, you know, ten, eleven, twelve, and you know, I was sort of trying to get people to look at it and be proud of it, and that just wasn't what my parents would ever be for me. You know, mm. they just they were people who never came to my baseball games. You know, I was a champion pole vaulter in high school, never came to one of my meets. They just were never going to be those people for me. And I don't really have that great of a memory of of those moments. But what my aunt did for me was she always was impressed. I remembered that she was impressed with what I was doing. And she actually collected some of my political cartoons and saved them and just sent them back to me a couple of years ago. You know, 30-year-old scraps of paper uh, of my work, you know, things that as soon as I saw them, they came right back to me. Wow. And... So she was the one person sort of in my life 
Not very often though, just on the holidays. But when I would see her on holidays, she would always ask me, she would ask me what I was doing, hmm. you know, what I was up to, what I was thinking about, what I was reading. And those weren't questions that family members were asking me ever in my life. But she was the one, she was, she was the one who seemed genuinely interested in what I was doing. Well, that's, that's really cool. Thanks for sharing that story. So I'm going to kind of skip ahead here a little bit. Um, I was introduced to you because you were a guest on a podcast that I listen to occasionally, uh, Leading Saints. And I thought, man, I like this guy, how he tells, tells stories. I'm going to go check out his podcast. So tell us about your podcast. Tell us what, uh, how that came to be and tell us a little bit about what you do with that. Sure. Well, I'm a storyteller. You know, back in 2011, at the urging of friends, I went to New York and I took a stage for the first time in what I thought would be the only time to tell a story for the Moth, the hmm. international storytelling organization, you know, true stories told on stage without notes. My friends thought I would be great at it. I did not want to do it, but I agreed to do it once and then never do it again. Hmm. And it turned out as soon as I took that stage, I fell in love with, you know, the art and craft of storytelling. And it's competitive, the Moth. They have a competitive element to it. And I am an exceptionally competitive person. I won my first moth story slam and I was just addicted to the, to the art and the craft and also the competition. Hmm. And so I did that. I started performing in New York and then in Boston. And then uh, in 2013, a couple years into my storytelling career, my wife and I launched Speak Up here in Connecticut. Essentially, there was no storytelling here at the time. And you know, I said it would be nice if we had something here as well. And so we started producing shows here. At every show, my wife is the host. I tell a story, and then we bring six other people onto stage, and I teach them how to tell the stories, and then they perform for us. And it's a great show. We bring in between 100 to 500 audience members, depending on the theater that we're wow. in, on any given night. And as I was telling stories at each one of these shows, and my wife was hosting, people started asking me if I would teach them storytelling. Can you teach a workshop? And I thought, that's the last thing I want to do. I work with kids because I like kids. I don't like adults that much. I don't want to teach them. But just like storytelling, I said, I'll do it once. Hmm. Do it once. I'm never doing it again. You need to take my workshop. I'm, you know, there's only going to be one shot at this. Hmm. And so, so I taught a workshop, a, a four-week workshop in a library. I found a room. I gathered 10 people who were desperate to learn. And right away, I fell in love with the teaching of storytelling. I loved listening to people's stories. I loved helping them make them better. It helped me because by then I was already recognized as sort of one of the best storytellers at the Moth. I, you know, I'm the most winning storyteller ever now, but I was winning a lot. But I really couldn't have defined what I was doing. You know, what I was doing was sort of coming natural to me. You know, it really wasn't natural. It was really, I was a novelist at the time. I'd been writing stories all my life. I'd, I was a wedding DJ for 20 years. So I was accustomed to standing in front of large groups of people. I had a lot of things that I had going for me sort of came together in storytelling, but I wasn't able to explain what I was doing until I started teaching it. And then I began deconstructing my process. So then I began to tell people exactly what I was doing and it strengthened the things that I was doing. So when I saw a strategy I was using, I thought, oh, you know what? I use that in almost all my stories, but I didn't use it here and I should have. Hmm. And so my stories began to get better as well. And my craft began to get more consistent. And we started recording those shows that we were producing here in Connecticut. And eventually I had a large library of stories of people and we launched a podcast. And the goal of the podcast was essentially to play one of those stories from a show Mm-hmm. And then sort of deconstruct that story. Talk about what's going well in that story, what could be improved, what strategies the storyteller's using, those kinds of things. And then I include a segment in the podcast about finding stories in your everyday life, which I think is the most important thing you can do as a storyteller. You know, finding stories is almost more important than crafting good stories. The best storytellers of the world are the people who have more to say. Yeah, and and I love, and, and I'll get to that, that... Uh finding stories in your everyday life. And I've been, I'm a faithful journaler and have been for, I don't know, six or seven years, not for a really long time, but six or seven years. Every day I journal twice in the morning and at night. You're very Um, unusual. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And, and I do it for self-maintenance reasons to keep myself sane basically. Yeah. But uh, I love how you seek moments in your day to just write a line about to come back to later and say, Hey, is that a story that's worth telling? 
and and I still am not really good in my journaling about that. I don't write a travel log in my journal. I don't say, you know, I did this at 10 and this at 11 or whatever. I, I write things that are meaningful to me, but I still, as I'm writing, I don't see them as stories. Tell me how you, how you de- determine what things that happen in your life are potential stories and are worth recording in. You call it homework for life, correct? Yes. Yeah. So tell yeah. us a little bit about that and, and how you determine what could be a story. Right. So homework for life is a process I, I, I engage in every day. I ask myself, what's the most story worthy moment from my day? You know, if I was forced to take a stage and tell a story, what that, what would that story be? Even if on the given day, there is nothing story worthy. I forced myself to find the thing that is the most story worthy, even though I I would never, I would never deign to tell it. I think those are actually the most important days to do homework for life because hmm. it's easy to to come up with good storytelling moments on your birthday, you know, on your wedding day. You know, there's lots of days where it's easy. I think that the muscle that needs to be worked is on the days when there aren't clear, obvious things that you can use uh, for your homework for life. What I've discovered over time is I see stories where no one else sees stories hmm. or where people who don't do homework for life see stories. And that's because I forced myself every day to do this. And I don't write it down. I, I'm not a journaler like you. And I don't encourage people actually to be journalers because I know they abandon it so often. What happens is a lot of people tend to journal sort of in between breakups. You know, mm. uh, they tend to journal when their life is difficult. And when right. their life is good, they tend to drift away from journaling because they don't need it anymore. Mm. And then you, you just lose time, you know. So what I do is I have an Excel spreadsheet and it has two columns. There's a date column. And then that B column, I stretch across the screen. And in the, the length of my screen, that's as much space as I have to write a moment. And each one of my days often has more than one moment that I'm able to collect. Not every one of them is going to be a story. In fact, you know, fewer than 50%, probably fewer than 20% of the moments that I actually write down ultimately are deemed story worthy and, and get moved over onto a list. But even the ones that aren't story worthy, I'm happy to be capturing them. You know, I think that even if you're not telling stories, even if you're not looking to tell stories, everyone should be doing homework for life because we just throw our, our days away. We, we just lose time. You know, like if I asked you, what did you do three Thursdays from now? Most people couldn't tell me what they were doing. That day is lost to them forever. If I ask you, give me 10 stories from 2005, 10 things that happened in 2005, unless that's a year you got married or changed your job or move, even then you probably only have 10. You threw the whole year away. Yeah. You know, homework for life is the acknowledgement that every day is precious in some way. Hmm. And we're going to find what makes today different than every other day. Even if what I find isn't truly something I'll tell a story about, it's going to mean something to me. And so I've been doing it now for seven years. And so I have seven years of of days that I don't lose anymore. And one of the most fun things I do is I'll go back and I'll relive 2016. Hmm. And I'll just sort of go through the thousand entries that I have from 2016. Every single one of them brings me right back to a place and a time. And I just love that. No, that's great. You know, one thing that I've, I think I've observed about you or heard about you as I'm listening to you um, in your podcast and even now is that you find it extremely important that you leave a mark or that something in your life leaves a mark for a long time into the future beyond your mortal life. Yeah, I, I believe that. You know, I always say that if your great grandmother had been a journaler, let's mm. say, or had been doing homework for life, and she had left five notebooks that detailed her life from, let's say, the age of 20 to 50, mm-hmm. your house catches on fire and your family members are out of the house, it's probably the thing that is most valuable to you. And yet, almost no one leaves anything behind. You know, if you just think about, let's, let's pick the year 1823, hmm. right? More than a billion people were existing on this earth in 1823. And we probably have evidence of a thousand of them, yeah. right? Like billions of people die every day and are forgotten forever. Yeah. with no record of them having ever existed. And so many of them are intricate members of families and friendship circles. And if they had taken the time to write something down, to memorialize themselves in some way, it would be enormously treasured by future generations. We don't do it. 
We, we deserve to be remembered is what I tell people. Yeah. And one of the ways you can be remembered is by telling stories. Another way is homework for life. You know, my kids know about my homework for life. If I get hit by a bus tomorrow, they're going to know that there's seven years of me recording something about every one of my days for the last seven years. And hopefully it's going to be the next 70 years, you know, whether it's, whether it's a big meaningful moment in my life or it's two days ago when I was in the car and my son said, dad, I just love my life. Hmm. And that's what was my, that was my homework for life moment for that day. Because if you're a parent, you know that you spend your life hearing your kids say crazy things and saying, <laughs> God, that was hilarious. I got to write that down. No one actually does that. Right. And suddenly your kid's 18 and you wonder where the years went. I will not be in that boat because I have homework for life. I'm recording my days with my kids and I will be able to go back and relive the moments and I don't lose them anymore. What made you determine that you would not be in that boat of everybody else who doesn't write down those magical, memorable moments that I swear at the moment, I will never forget this as long as I live. And then it's gone two days later. Yeah, it was a combination of two things, really. One is a deep and terrifying fear of death. Mm. Uh, you know, when I was 21, I was robbed at gunpoint. And, uh, you know, a gun was put to my head and a trigger was pulled. And I believed in, in that moment that I was going to die. And so I understand what it is like to feel regret at the end of your life. Mm. So lying on a, on a greasy tile floor in a McDonald's restaurant with three armed men thinking that this was absolutely the end of my life. I wasn't afraid. I wasn't angry. I was just consumed with sadness and regret for all the things that I hadn't done and how quickly I would be forgotten. Wow. And I think that's what happens to people, but it happens to them in their deathbed at 80. Hmm. And I got a glimpse of it at 21. And, you know, I'm fond of saying, and it's true that, a lot of me is still lying on a greasy tile floor in a McDonald's restaurant with a gun to my head. It's a thing that comes to my mind many times over the course of every day of my life. So part of it is the idea that I will not face that regret again, that I have structured my life in such a way that I can be the most productive, efficient person, that I can leave a mark in this world, that I can that I can let my friends and my family know who I am so that when that day comes, I'm not regretful for the things that I haven't done. Hmm. And the, the other thing was just, I wanted to continue telling stories. I, I got to know quickly in New York that there were some guys who had the same six stories. They rolled their old chestnuts out and I didn't want to be a chestnut guy. I wanted hmm. to be someone who every time I took the stage, I had a brand new story for people. And everyone told me that was an unrealistic goal that you can't, have a brand new story every time. People just don't have that many stories in their life. And homework for life, which was, you know, a homework assignment I gave to myself first, and now I've given it to thousands of people all over the world. It was my attempt to find enough stories so that every time I took the stage, I could tell a new one. Hmm. And it's worked. I didn't expect it to ever work in the way it did. I thought I will find maybe one new story per month. So I'll get 12 new stories over the course of each year. And that hmm. would be fantastic. I didn't expect that my life was filled with as many stories as it is. I didn't expect to discover that there are moments throughout many, many, many days where there are things that I can talk about and share with people that become meaningful to people. All of that was a surprise to me. Yeah. And, you know, you've had some remarkable things, some extraordinary things happen in your life. But I love how you're saying that you're finding moments in your ordinary life that become extraordinary in a storytelling setting. I mean, so many of us, myself included, uh, most of the time say, man, I live such a boring life. And I'll bet you say the same thing very often in your life. You know, your day-to-day -day life, eh, it's kind of plain, right? Well, I don't anymore because of Homework for Life because mm. I really do see every day seems really special to me because I find these moments, I, I, I mark them, I note them, I record them. So truly every day feels very special to me now. And time has slowed down for me in a way that it never had before. Now, what if, um, let's do a little time travel here and bring it to today. Sure. You're in, how old are you, Matt? I'm 48. 48 years old. So it, it was, I think you said you were 21 years old when you were in that McDonald's, uh, when that yeah. uh, traumatic experience happened. So we're now 27 years later. Yeah. Let's, let's say that today that same situation happens. 
um, in that last, what you believe is your last moments on earth, do you still have that regret, that sadness looking back if, if, if that happens today? Well, I mean, it's, it's impossible to know, Mm -hmm. but what I, what I do know is that if I reflect back on the last 27 years of my life, I really do feel great about the fact that I've used my time exceptionally well. That, you know, it isn't, it isn't a mystery that after that robbery, at the time I was facing trial for a crime I did not commit. Mm. Uh, so there's a lot of turmoil in my life. But once I cleared all of those hurdles, you know, right after the robbery, I found my way to college for the first time. Mm. You know, and I worked... 60 hours a week managing another McDonald's restaurant while going to school full-time at two different colleges, full-time. Wow. So I could get two degrees simultaneously. And none of it seemed really challenging to me. Because when you're homeless and facing a trial and robbed at gunpoint, all of that, nothing seems as hard. Hmm. But ever since that night, I, f- I would feel good if I was sort of facing that situation again. I would at least feel good in knowing that I used my time wisely. You know, now I have children, so there would yeah. be other regrets that would certainly f- come into my brain. Yeah. You know, the desire to watch them grow up and things like that would come into play. But I wouldn't have the regret that I had wasted my time, which is what I felt like that night. Yeah. And it sounds like you have spent your time making sure that, and I don't think it's necessarily in a prideful way, like look at me way, but that you've left a mark, you know, that uh, people will know who you are, even if it's just your extended family going down generations, you know, but people will know who you are. Yeah. yeah. Part of my desire to be a teacher was to sort of mm. influence the future in a meaningful way. You know, when I was interviewed for my first teaching job, one of the answers I gave to why I wanted to be a teacher was I said, I don't think anyone's ever going to build a statue to me to remember me in that way. But what I'd like to do is to think that by teaching kids, I'll be remembered. And some of the lessons that I think are important, I can impart upon some of my kids and they will pass it on to their children. And, and the things that I believe that are important in this world will live well past myself. Mm. I like that. So was there a teacher in your childhood that, that inspired you to do that? Or tell me about that. I, I had a bunch because my home life was so unfortunate that school was a good place for me. Mm. You know, so in high school and, you know, even in middle school, I had teachers who meant the world to me truly i mean the teacher the reason i'm a writer today is because of a an english teacher my senior year of high school i wasn't uh i wasn't college bound coming out of high school i was getting kicked out of my house at 18 by my stepfather you know it was time to go live on your own right and so college wasn't an opportunity i saw for myself in fact no one had ever said the word college to me throughout my entire high school career even though i had excellent grades and champion pole vaulter. I played in the marching band. I had lots of things going for me, but for whatever reason, no one saw me as a person who could get to college. So I didn't care about school as much as a lot of my classmates, you know, unless I liked the class, unless I cared about it. So I was in an English class my senior year and uh, the teacher's name was Mr. Campo Piano. And in November, he started teaching us about satire. And I had never heard of it before, but I loved it. I loved the idea that I could make fun of people and be sarcastic. And I love the fact that like Gulliver's Travels is a, is a book of fiction. You know, it comes across as fiction, but it's actually just filled with insults about people of the time. You know, it was, it's like an insult-packed story, you know, disguised by fiction. I loved all of that. So Mr. Campo had us write some satire one day and uh, we handed it in and I just thought mine was brilliant. I thought it was the best thing that had ever been written in America. That's honestly how I felt. Uh And when I got it back, I got a B minus. I still have the paper today. Hmm. And uh, I was angry. Uh, B minus. I couldn't believe it. I I felt so, I felt so cheated by the school district because I felt like they had given me a teacher who was an idiot. And so I charged to the front of the room and I told him what I felt. And he, he was the kind of guy who would get angry very quickly. So he told me what he thought. And pretty soon we were sort of shouting at each other. And then he stopped it. And he said, listen, read it to the class. He said, I don't think it's satire. It's too obvious. Mm. But read it to the class. If they think it's satire, I'll make your B minus and A minus. Mm. Said, but if they agree with me that it's too obvious and it's not really satire, your B minus becomes a C minus. Oh, wow. That's a great lesson for teachers. Raise the stakes on kids. Mm. And so I read that satire to my class 
And I was a two or three sentences in when I heard the first person laugh at something I had written. And it was a girl that I had a crush on for basically my life. And she was now laughing at something that I had said. And as I read, more and more people started laughing until the whole room was laughing by the time I finished. And when Mr. Campo said, raise your hand if you think what Matt has written is satire, every hand, including his, went up. Oh, wow. He told me that it doesn't come across as satire on the page, he says, but you brought it to life. You really have a way of performing it that turned it into satire. And that's the day I became a writer. You know, that was the day I made a girl laugh by something I wrote, which I still do to this day. I just try to make my wife laugh all the time. I made a teacher look like a fool, which was great because I hated authority. So I conquered authority. But mostly the, the real thing that happened to me was I felt like I had changed my future a little bit. Not in a deep and meaningful way. A B, you know, a B minus into an A minus probably didn't even change my grade. Right. But I was a kid with no future. I was worried about food and shelter when I graduated from high school. And I felt like I had written something. And by writing it, the world had changed a little bit. My world. Right. And so I came back to school that Monday morning and I started my first business. I was writing term papers for my classmates. Uh-huh. And with the money I earned writing term papers for my classmates, I bought my first car. And without exaggeration, ever since that day in Mr. Campo's classroom, I have written every single day of my life and I have yet to miss a day. You know, the, the day that my daughter was born, I was writing in the delivery room in between the pushing and I wrote oh. on my wedding day and every day of my honeymoon. I've had pneumonia and I've gotten out of bed to write. I haven't missed a day of writing since then. It was the day I became a writer. So I credit Mr. Campo for, for being unorthodox, you know, for being a, the kind of teacher that is willing to take on a challenge, the kind of teacher who can put up with someone like me. Uh, you know, he changed my life that day. Wow. That's a great experience. And I, I love how, how he raised the stakes on you and said, yeah. hey, prove it to me. I'll stand right. up to this. But he was willing to, to eat some pride there if, yeah. if everybody believed that way. I love that. Right. Yeah, it was vulnerability. He had vulnerability that day. Yeah. Have you ever, have you ever done that in your elementary school classroom? Something similar to that? <laughs> yeah, I've done many things like that. Some of them not advised. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, I, I remember that years ago, there was a boy who just kept getting in trouble in class and I, I got so sick of it. Someone came to me and said, this boy, he stole my pencil. And I said, that's it. I'm done. We're having a trial. Mm. And I had a trial. I, I, we picked a judge. They, I said, who's the most trustworthy kid in the room? Everyone pointed to this girl. Mm -hmm. I said, you're the judge. And you're on trial. You know, there was the plaintiff and the defendant. The plaintiff complained he stole my pencil. The defendant, no, I didn't. I assigned them uh, attorneys. They got to pick anyone in class who they thought was clever enough to get them out of trouble. We picked a jury. We had a bailiff. All of this was not good teaching. You, you, <laughs> you don't put kids on trial in front of their classmates for possible theft. <laughs> but, you know, there was this amazing moment in the middle of the trial where the kids on the stand, the kid who's accused of stealing the pencil, and the boy who is the, uh, the prosecutor, essentially, says, prove to me that you didn't steal the pencil. And the kid said, there was no pencil in the desk to steal. And the prosecutor said, how do you know? And he said, because I went into the desk to steal his lunchbox and I couldn't find a pencil. And then his jaw just dropped because he's eight years old. He doesn't realize, you know, he realizes, oh my God, what did I just say? <laughs> and the whole courtroom goes hush with disbelief. You know, it's this crazy moment in my life, but it's kind of <laughs> like the thing Mr. Campo did, but you know, his was more appropriate, I think, than mine. It all worked <laughs> out fine. We all had a good time with it. We laughed, you know, that boy is still in my life to this day. Uh, uh, but you know, I I've always been a teacher who is willing to close the door and do the things that I think are right. And sometimes they're right and sometimes they're not so right, but you know, I managed to smooth it over in the end. Now, um, recently it was either in, it was in a recent podcast. You talked about the setup of your classroom, what it looks like. I found that fascinating. Tell us a little bit about what your classroom looks like and why. Okay. Well, I have a stage built into my classroom. So I teach Shakespeare to my students and we perform a Shakespearean production at the end of the year. Mm -hmm. We use the original text from Shakespeare. It's just an abbreviated version of every play. So it's not two hours long. It's, you know, 45 minutes long. But I, I have a stage built. Uh, I have lighting uh, welded to the girder that runs through my classroom. 
I have a sound system wired in. You know, I have a curtain that the fire department had to come and put a blowtorch to to <laughs> guarantee that it would not catch on fire. They gave me a certificate. The fire chief said, if I ever show up here, you will show me the certificate. So there's a file in my file cabinet. I've never had to open it that says curtain certificate. Uh, so it's, you know, it's like a little functioning theater in my classroom. You know, I, I built it because I wanted to produce theater in my classroom. And my first couple years, I did the plays on our school stage. And that was hard. It was hard to get the stage time. And little voices don't carry well in big auditoriums. Right. So stuffing 100 parents in a classroom uncomfortably at least allows them to hear what their kids are saying. Mm -hmm. So that worked out well. I also was always playing the long game. So once I ended up in the classroom that I wanted to be in, you know, I was in, I was in a classroom for the first three years of my career, and then they moved me to a new classroom, and I decided I want to stay here forever. Hmm. So playing the long game, I realized if I weld lighting to the, to the girder, they can never move me. Like I'm, I'm entrenching myself in this classroom in a way that I really can't be moved. And so for the last 18 years, I've been in the same classroom, which is kind of unheard of. You know, teachers unfortunately get bumped around quite a bit and, you know, they have to move their stuff. But I, I'm locked in because I believe in, in looking far ahead and making sure that your life in the future is going to be excellent. So, yeah, yeah, it's a great place. It's a good place to be. But I, I love how you mentioned playing the long game. Um, and I think that Homework for Life is a great example of playing the long game because yeah. you may record something you know, seven years ago when you first started that you think, uh, eh, that's all right. But then when you go back and look at it now, seven years later, something has terminated that has made that something that's a big story. Can you think of an example of that in your life right now? Something from the past that is sort of terminated. Well, I guess it, it hasn't really terminated through my homework for life. I've been able to watch the transformation, I guess, you know, I don't know my father very well. Hmm. He, um, he left when I was seven. My parents got divorced. My mom threw him out and left him for another man. He didn't do anything wrong, really, other than maybe he wasn't the best husband for her. But he sort of left my life, and I haven't seen him very much. My kids have met him once in their lives, and um, I have probably seen him you know, a handful of times over the past decade. But back in 2013, we started writing letters to each other. It turns out he's a very good writer. Hmm. And... For a while, we wrote often to each other. And, you know, there's a homework for life moment where he writes me the first letter and I'm afraid about what it will say. I don't know what it says and I don't know why my father's written to me and I'm thinking he's probably angry with me. And so there's a homework for life moment that uh, talks about how I didn't open the letter at first. I waited until my wife and I were going to a movie. We were seeing a comedy. And during the trailers to the comedy, I took the letter out. And Alicia, my wife, said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm going to open dad's letter now because if it's bad news, I'll be able to enjoy the movie and put the letter behind me for a while and not stew over it. And, you know, she thought I was crazy. I've had a therapist tell me that that was like a ninja Buddha genius move, you know. <laughs> uh, so that, that moment's in my homework for life. And then I started not opening my father's letters because they became, they became more sporadic. He just wasn't writing as often as he did. And I started to get scared. So even now, like in my backpack here, I have an unopened letter from my father. Hmm. I don't open a letter until I receive another letter. And that way I'm preventing my father from leaving me again, because I have a bit of him that I have not yet discovered. And again, I told that to a therapist and he said, that is a genius ninja move as well. <laughs> but that was in my homework for life. My, one day my wife said, why haven't you opened your father's letter? And I really hadn't really, I knew I was doing this, but I really hadn't thought about why. And then I told her and I went, wow, that's why I'm doing it. That moment pops up in my homework for life. And then recently I had something in my homework for life that says my father hasn't written to me in six months. What is going on? And so I've been able to sort of track the, relationship I've had with my father through paper and pen through my homework for life and these moments that have been popping up. And so I haven't reached the end of that story, but I certainly could tell that story or tell a couple stories from those moments that have been going on. And I don't know how many of those I remember if I'm not writing them down. I know they seem sort of big and you, how could you forget that? But honestly, you've forgotten 
a thousand times more than you remember. And that's just true. The other thing the homework for life will do for you though, is if you start doing it regularly, you sort of crack open and memories from the past will suddenly appear in ways that you can't believe. Things that you have forgotten, that you're appalled that you had forgotten will suddenly pop up and they enter my homework for life too. So my homework for life is a lot of moments that are happening now, but sprinkled in there are memories that are popping up and they become part of they can they become part of it as well and those are just as valuable yeah so when you input an old memory you input today's date but in the comment do you say hey this happened about 10 years ago or whatever or i use the i just use the word memory oh, okay. i use memory colon and then i write it and um you know if it needs a date i'll put a date you know if it doesn't it doesn't but the things i've remembered that i can't believe i've forgotten it's just astounding the memories that have returned to me and how happy I am that they've returned to me because it just makes your past become more complete and more alive. You know, you know, when you say what happened in 2005, I'm much more likely to have memories from 2005 than most people because I'm constantly mining my past for these stories. I'm going to share a little experience that I had this over the Christmas season. Uh, a few months ago, I, I ordered your book Story Worthy on Amazon. and it eventually came. I didn't see it because my wife was getting all the Christmas gifts and everything coming in. And my daughter, who's 14, is a huge bookie. She reads all day, every day she writes. She's a, she's a little comedian. She's just, just amazing. Anyway, so my wife just assumed this book was for my daughter and wrapped it up and gave it to her for Christmas. And when she opened it, I was like... <laughs> there's my book. <laughs> I'm going to be interviewing Matt here in a few, in a couple of weeks. I need that. And my daughter was like, um, no, I'm going to read it first. And so she's about halfway through it. And a couple of days ago, she, yeah, she came up to me a couple of days ago. She goes, dad, do you mind if I like write and make notes in this book? And I was like, no, you can go ahead and do that. Is it, are you learning lots? She goes, yeah. So, so this story worthy book is really powerful and it's, although I haven't had a chance to read it because my daughter won't let me. <laughs> um, she, she's getting a lot out of it. And what, what, is the, what is your hope in that book, Story Worthy? And why, why do you think you ended up writing it? Well, my hope is to make people into better storytellers. You know, I just think that the world is filled with bad storytelling. I think that we suffer it all the time. I think there's people who just sort of don't fundamentally understand what a story even is. And so the hope of the book is that the world can become uh, filled with more interesting stories and more stories overall, just things that people want to hear. Uh, because I'm an elementary school teacher, what I've done is I've taken the process of storytelling and broken it down into its simplest parts, simple, repeatable steps that will allow you to tell better stories, find the stories that you want to tell, those kinds of things. So. It's essentially what you get from me if you spend 80 hours of instructional time with me. You know, that is sort of how it works out. Mm -hmm. Originally, I thought, well, I'll just write everything I teach over the course of a weekend workshop. And then it expanded from there, you know, and honestly, there was a lot of stuff I had to leave out because the book was just getting too long. So there's a couple chapters that I really regret leaving out now because I just understand their importance. So, you know, I'm working on another, uh, a follow-up to it that'll okay. include those things. But, but the goal was to make it accessible to everyone. Because I think that when people hear me tell stories, they see it as, well, impossible. They see it as a, as a huge thing, a giant process that they could never engage in. Or they see me as someone who has interesting stories, but they don't have any interesting stories to tell. And the book tries to sort of eliminate all of those notions mm. and let them understand that this is a craft that you can learn, you know, that it is not that difficult to become good at and that your life is filled with stories that you just haven't seen yet. So that those were all the goals. Hmm. I know you talk about homework for life, obviously in story worthy. What are a couple of other practices that you talk about in the book that you might be willing to share a little bit about in this conversation? Yeah. I don't know what exercises I include in the book, to be honest with you and which ones I don't. So um, maybe these pop up in the book, but maybe they don't. One of my favorite things is I simply ask myself all the time, why do you do the things that you do? Uh, and that question, oddly enough, often yields stories. It's actually why I, uh, I ask myself 
why do you not open your father's letters until a new letter arrives? And then I found the reason why, and the reason why ends up being a story. Mm. And so small things and big things that you do often have stories hiding behind them when you actually take the time to, to ask yourself, why am I doing this thing that I do? You know, and, and it has to be something, it can't be sort of like eating because we know why we eat. Right. It has to be other kinds of things that we do. So I asked that question of myself quite a bit and I find a lot of stories that way. Hmm. Um, I also, you know, I, I have a lot of exercises that I use in my workshops and I play those exercises by myself all the time because no one wants to play them with me <laughs> anymore. You know, so, so when I was playing in class today, actually I taught my students, it's a game I call three, two, one. I love that one, by the way. Oh, good. Uh, so very simply, it's the three stands for three objects, three nouns. The storyteller is offered three nouns. So looking at my table right now, things that are on my table, I would say wallet and lamp and book. Let's say those are my three nouns. Uh, I need to craft a story about either a wallet, a lamp or a book. It has to be a true story from my life using one of those objects. The two comes from I have, I get to tell a story that is two minutes long or less. And the one comes from the fact that I get only one minute to prepare it. So what happens in my workshops is we offer the storyteller three objects. They have to be tangible. You can touch them. And they can't be proper nouns because Benjamin Franklin is really a hard noun to work with. So you get three tangible, non-proper nouns, and then you tell a true story from your life. What happens is if I had actually done wallet, book, and lamp, for example, I just thought of a wallet story that I've never told before. Hmm. And I can add it to my list tonight. I've actually yeah. just found a new story. Awesome. It forces your brain to reconsider your life through the framing of an object. You know, there's also like noun generators online, instant noun generators. So if I'm in a meeting and I'm not enjoying the meeting very much, or I'm not really needed, like, why am I here? This is not about me. Sometimes I'll just bring up a random noun generator and I'll click and a noun will come up and I'll ask myself, do I have a story related to this noun? Hmm. It's just creating a new framing device to examine your life. Because if I was to say, tell me a good story from your life, that's a daunting question. But if I say, tell a good story from your life and make sure it includes a mailbox, hmm. right? You might, you might have a story about a mailbox, you might not. If I give you three objects, I've never met anyone who couldn't tell a story about one of those objects. And when I say a story, it could be a 20 second anecdote about a mailbox all the way up to a two minute story about a mailbox. Right. Because anecdotes are often the building blocks of stories anyway. So a 10 second anecdote or a 20 second anecdote will often be really useful in a future story, even though it won't be the story itself. Hmm. My family and I took a road trip. It's been three or four months ago now. Um, and on that road trip, I introduced my family to three, two, one. And we had a good time for about three rounds around the car, you know? Yeah. And then I was like, hey, let's keep doing this. And they're like, nah, no. <laughs> <laughs> story of my life, man. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a story of my life. You got to play it by yourself sometimes. It's yeah. sad, but true. <laughs> uh, but I do know a lot of people who play it in the car. I know a woman who took a workshop with me. She taught her son to play it. He sits in the back. She drives. And uh, she said, every time we get in the car, he shouts three nouns at me. And I tell him stories. And she said, I'm sick of it because I like listening to music. But she also said, my son has never known more about my past since we started 321. Yeah. I tell him stories that I would have never thought to tell him. So she's really happy about that. And, and that's, it's just another way to find stories in your life. Yeah. Are you willing to do a 321 with me right now? Oh, yeah. I love playing that game. Yeah. Okay. My daughter helped me put this together. I, I asked her, hey, will you help me put together three nouns for, for Matt if, uh, if he's willing to do a 321? Yeah. She goes, heck yeah. So here's the three nouns for you. I've got okay. glass of water. Okay. I've got cow. Yep. I've got pantry. Okay. So usually in a workshop, what happens is the storyteller just sort of goes off to the corner to think on their own. I'll let you know what I'm thinking out loud. You know, as a teacher, I'll do a quick little think aloud. I'll tell you, I'll tell you my, my process. I appreciate that. So the glass of water nothing's really coming to mind on glass of water. It should though, that feels pretty ubiquitous. There should be a glass of water story in my life. I can't think of one. Cow, okay, I have a cow story. Ah, actually I have, a, I have, a, I have two cow stories now. I grew up <laughs> next to a dairy farm, that helps. Ah. My uncle owned it. Uh, so I have a cow story. What was the third noun? Pantry. Pantry. 
I mean, I could, I could tell you a, a 20 second anecdote about a pantry involving my cat, but I guess I'll tell the cow story. All right. And so, uh, I'm, am I still, are you timing me right now? Am I still within my minute? Yeah, you're within your minute. What I do then is I try to find the moment I want to land on because you should always know where you're going to end. So I know where my moment that I'm going to land on is. And then to find the beginning of a story, you often ask yourself, what is the opposite of the end of your story? Hmm. And that ends up being the beginning. That's how stories work, right? right. We, we start in one place and we end in another. It's the change that makes a story good. All right, so here goes. <laughs> this, is what, this one's tricky. Let's see. I'm probably, I'm 16 years old. And it is well after midnight. And I am on the edge of a large field with my friend Peter. We have crawled underneath the electric barbed wire carefully because a couple months ago, I was not careful about it and ended up getting knocked out for three hours. (laughs) So we get under the barbed wire safely and we're now in the pasture. And out in the middle of the field in the moonlight, there are cows. It's my uncle's dairy cows. I am a farm kid. I've grown up in a little farm town. I used to live on a horse farm until my parents got divorced. But oddly enough, I've never been cow tipping, even though I live next door to a dairy farm. And so I decided I'm old enough and it's time for me to cow tip. And Peter has agreed to cow tip with me, although now that we're in the pasture, Peter is telling me he is no longer interested in cow tipping. He is interested in watching me tip a cow, but he wants nothing to do with it. And that's fine with me. Frankly, I like to do things by myself because then I can take more credit for them or all the credit for them. And so I have a witness, which is really all I needed. I needed someone to watch me tip this cow. You know, if it was today, there would be cell phones and photos taken. But back then, it's word of mouth and that's all I can rely on. And so I get a good distance from the cow so I can get a good head of steam. I'm a, I'm a sprinter. in in high school and a pole vaulter, like I'm gonna be able to get moving on this cow. And so I start running across this moonlit pasture, aiming at the smallest cow that I can find. And I hit the cow with all of my might. I slam into the side of that cow and it doesn't move an inch. I hit the cow like I hit a brick wall and I end up flat on my back underneath the cow. I sort of smashed the top of my body, but the bottom of my body continues to go under the cow, and I flip and I hit my head on the ground, and I'm now under the cow. And I don't even know if the cow knew that it had been struck, because it didn't moo, it didn't flinch. I might as well have been a mosquito to that cow. And the only sound I can hear is Peter laughing over by the fence at what has just happened. It won't be until 35 years later, probably, when I'm wondering why I couldn't tip a cow that night. And I go on the internet to look up cow tipping to figure out what the hell went wrong. And I discover, Googling, that cow tipping is not a thing. (laughs) That people don't actually tip cows that they may claim to tip cows or they may try to tip cows like I do, but cows are not tippable, tippable, (laughs) tippable creatures when it comes to human being. Thank you. Oh, that's awesome. (laughs) Get clotheslined by a cow and you're out snipe hunting in the end is what it turned out to be, huh? Yeah. It was very sad. It's a sad, sad moment for me. (laughs) But it was just a few years ago that I actually Googled cow tipping because someone said, Oh, you live, grew up next to a dairy farm. You must have gone cow tipping a lot. And I said, nope, just once, and it didn't work out. And they laughed at me, and I said, it's harder than you think, and we just ended up Googling it. And if you Google cow tipping, it says, no, not not possible. <laughs> you know, you need like five guys, you might get a cow tipped over with five guys. Uh, but it's just not a real thing. Oh, that's funny. Thank yeah. you for sharing that story. I appreciate it. I can already think of the ways that I would revise it, though. It's funny. Yeah. You know, I'm already like, I'm already thinking, I could tell that story. That would be like a story worthy of the stage, but I'd... I'd automatically think of ways to recraft it. But that's one yeah. of the beauties of 321 is it's all improv- improvisation, you know. It's good for people because in my workshops, they like to hear me tell a less than ideal version of mm-hmm. a story. It's good to hear an expert not sounding like an expert, understanding that, that these stories don't burst forth from me mm-hmm. through sheer inspiration, but it is actually application of craft 
and revision that produce the stories. And I think that's valuable to a valuable point to to learn from pretty much any situation. You know, when we're comparing ourselves against experts who have, you know, crafted in this in this instance a story, crafted it for hours and hours and hours that they've worked on it over and over and over again. Um, and we compare it to our little measly effort that we put forward in five or 10 yeah. minutes or whatever. Right. Yeah. It's very rare that someone is sort of just throwing great content out without any effort. You know, the content often requires a lot of work, a lot of massaging. Now I admit that the version of the story I just told might be better than most people's version, first version of the story, but that's only through expertise and through experience that, and you can gain that as well. Yeah, I mean, as you were uh, thinking about it before, you're talking about, well, I want to, I got to see where the ending is and see where the beginning is. They got to counterbalance each other, kind of be opposites, and right. then create the the middle. And you know, most people, my obviously myself included, would be like, "Hey, I got a story about cows. I once went cow tipping and I <laughs> slammed into the cow and fell underneath it." You know. <laughs> Right. Yes. Yeah. But with some practice, you would tell a much better version of that story. Yeah. And I think the, the electrified uh, barbed wire is a story in, it, in and of itself, too, the, the previous experience. Yeah, it really is. It was the last day of school, <laughs> and I decided to take a shortcut home, and the shortcut landed me at Uncle George's pasture. And I remember I lifted the barbed wire up to get under it, and the way barbed wire works is the electricity travels through the wire, so it there's moments when the wire is perfectly fine and you can touch it and nothing would happen. And I managed to get all the way under it, holding the wire up when the electricity came by. And three and a half hours later, I opened my eyes and thought, (laughs) what the hell just happened? It felt like someone had hit me on the back with a baseball bat. It was Mm. so painful. So yeah, the first day of my summer vacation, I got electrified by the barbed wire. (laughs) Oh, that's great. Um, so Matt, is there anything else in your life or in your experience that you feel you want to share right now? Usually my close up question is what is something you want to make sure that your grandchildren and great grandchildren know is important to you? But I think you're writing about that every day. That is true. And so, so, and I think you've talked about that, but do you feel like there's anything else that's important for us um, who will be listening to this to know about you or about what's important to you? Well, you know, the, there's a book I'm working on now, and it's sort of, it's sort of an obsession of mine. But it's been an obsession with of mine forever. It's just the idea. It goes right back to the to that greasy tile floor and the gun. Really, it's the idea that as I watch people live their lives, the question that I ask, ask the most in all my life is, how do you do all the things that you do? Because I, I just, you know, as my wife says, he has 14 jobs and he somehow manages to do all of them. Hmm. Um, And as I go through my life, what I see that is most tragic in my mind is that people don't understand that time is the most valuable commodity that they have. And so the book I'm working on is the idea about maximizing your time to its greatest effect. I I try to live my life or I try to make my decisions based upon not the the me that exists right now, but I like to think ahead to the 100-year-old version of myself. You know, when I'm in my deathbed at the age of 100, what does that person want me to do with today? Mm. And I try to live my life in that way. So it's small and big things. Like I was just talking to someone the other day. I talk about how important proximity is in your life. So when people say, how do you get as much done? For the past 21 years, I have lived five minutes from my job. Mm. And so if you have a 30-minute commute and I have a five-minute commute, you can imagine how many extra minutes I have compared to you in a given week, right? Or over the course of 21 years, I'm going to crush you every time. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, so this person was telling me about this gym that they go to that they love. Mm -hmm. And they said, it's just the perfect gym for me. Mm. And I go to the gym every day. And, you know, they said, which gym did you choose? And I said, I chose the gym that was the closest to my house. Because even though there might be a better gym, a gym that I might enjoy much more, I know that time is more important than a gym, hmm. but, you know, if, if I'm getting 80% enjoyment out of the gym I currently go to, and I could get 100% enjoyment, but it would take me an extra 20 minutes to get there, it's not worth it. Yeah. So my gym is four minutes from my house. It is in between my work and my home. And so for me, all of those kinds of decisions that I make, you know, the decision where I go to one grocery store every week, 
and I never go to two, you know, because my wife goes to many grocery stores <laughs> and, you know, it kills me because I know she's going to regret it someday. She says, but the produce at Whole Foods is so good. Uh-huh. And I say, I know it's so good, but is it so good that it is worth an hour of the time you could be spending with your children? Because it's a 20 minute ride there and a 20 minute ride back and it's 20 minutes to shop for produce. And by the way, frozen vegetables are the most healthy vegetables you can buy anyway. I know you don't believe it, but it's true. So just go to Stop and Shop and get yourself frozen vegetables. And that's the healthiest choice anyway. But I choose one grocery store closest to me because I can memorize where everything is. And now my grocery store trip is shorter. And I do it with everything. Hmm. And because of it, I just have more time than most people. And I just see every day the wastefulness, the way people throw their time away, like it's endless. And having been on a greasy kitchen floor with a gun to your head, I can tell you your life is not endless. That time is finite. And when it does come calling, I don't want people to have the regret that they did not spend their time wisely. Mm. And I don't want them to look back on their life and think, I could have had an extra hour a day, but I chose to go to the gym where I could also get the massage, the better massage from the better masseuse, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of the 75% good masseuse, I wanted the 95% good masseuse. It doesn't make any sense to me. Mm. Uh, So, you know, the thing that I want my kids to know, the thing I want people to know is take a look at your life and take a look at how you spend your minutes. Every minute is important. Every minute is honestly, truly important. And make sure that the minutes that you're spending you're doing the things you want to do. Now that might not be crazy like me where you're writing books and telling stories and running businesses and teaching school kids. Maybe what you've always dreamed of doing is learning to play the guitar or you want to garden or you just want to spend more time with your children or you want to you want to play pool with your buddies. Mm-hmm. Whatever you want to do, you have time to do things and you're just not maximizing your time. And so look at your time, inventory it and and choose to spend it in the right way. No, that's, that's great advice. And uh, I'm going to live seven years longer. Thanks to you. I started flossing my teeth in the shower about a month ago or so. Whenever Bravo. you mentioned that first. <laughs> yes, that is fantastic. Very well done. Yeah. Before, you know, I'd go to the dentist's office and dental hygienist, Hey, do you floss your teeth? Yeah. Whenever there's something, it's stuck in there. And they're, yeah. they always say under their breath or out loud, uh, there's always something in there. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. Right. And now I floss my teeth and I'll live longer because of that. <laughs> yes, you will. Yeah. That's a fact, people. Yes. Floss every day. You'll live longer. Awesome. So Matt, um, I think we'll wrap this up here. Thank you for taking some valuable minutes of your of your life and your day today to have this conversation with me. It's very meaningful to me and I hope it's been meaningful to you. It has. It's been my pleasure. Thanks. Awesome. Well, there you have it. Every Minute is Important with Matthew Dix. Thank you again, Matt. It truly was a pleasure to get to know you a little better and learn from your experiences and insights and talents. If you, like I, were inspired to do something new or different from this conversation, I plead with you to act on it. Now, don't say, I'll get to it tomorrow, because you and I both know that we won't. Do something about it now, or it will be lost forever. Thanks again for listening in. Please check out our sponsors, alifeuntold.com, shepherdbrackets.com, and radfordpineshomedecor.com. Rate and review us, and come ready next week to learn and apply something else from another very meaningful conversation with ordinary people with extraordinary stories. Now go to Make Every Minute Important. Mm-hmm.